time of the tall ships was one of action and adventure, but for several centuries, the biggest threat often came from a vitamin deficiency. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. We will be discussing scurvy, how a surgeon, a mariner, a gentleman solved the greatest medical mystery of the age of sail with author Stephen Brown. Stephen, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. How did you get interested in the topic of scurvy? I have to admit, I came to my interest in scurvy from an interest in pirates. You know, you always hear about, argh, yes, scurvy dogs, avast. And I always had this fascination with pirates and the golden age of piracy. And, and you know, as I got older, I was always interested in history. And that's my great, you know, professional uh, endeavor. As a professional historian, I, I always was interested in explorers and exploration and the great age of sail and this idea of people launching themselves off from the coasts of unknown continents to sail off and discover what they were going to. And uh, invariably what comes up in all the original accounts of these things is the horrible deaths, the horrible diseases that would be experienced on the ship. And it happened time and time again over hundreds and hundreds of years, the same symptoms always cropping up. It was always the, the dreaded scurvy. It was everywhere. Every expedition that left, left land for any period of time suffered from this horrible thing. So what were the symptoms of scurvy? The, the most common ones are like brown, your, your gums would grow brown and spongy, your breath would get horrible, horrible stinking them, your skin would get all crinkly like, like paper with ink blotches on it, um, all the sags would come in your, on bags under your eyes, your teeth would eventually fall out, the opening of old wounds that had um, re-knitted themselves or bones that had broken would become rebroken again. Essentially, the, you know, the body's connective tissue is becoming unglued. Horrible death, actually. So prior to the discovery of vitamin C, how did the captains compensate for all these sailors that they were going to lose with scurvy? You know, you touched on something that's very interesting there, is that they knew that the sailors were going to die of scurvy for hundreds of years, and they, they had to plan for it. So sometimes on these ships that would be maybe, you know, a couple hundred feet long, 50 feet wide, with several decks of people, they would be cramming like 500 men onto them. And into their calculations, they knew half of them were going to die on the voyage. So at the start of the voyage, the ships were desperately overcrowded. And, of course, you know, this was a breeding ground for other diseases as well, not just scurvy, but all the yellow fevers and the plagues and everything would also be raging on these ships. But half of them, were, it, was, it was planned into the voyage that 50% would die. Now, so of course, sometimes more than that died even. But. So over the years, how many sailors did they estimate died of scurvy in the age of the tall ships? I mean, it, it's actually, it's a difficult figure to come to, but, you know, some historians have tried to add it up, and it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Um, and, of course, he gets into the issue of whether the scurvy is the, whether you're talking about the ultimate cause of their death or the proximate cause of their death. Let's say a ship full of sailors is, is, is they're all suffering from scurvy, and there's no one left to sail the ship anymore. And back then, these ships were very labor-intensive things. They didn't have motors, or they couldn't just tie up at docks. I mean, they, they had to have constant churning of men around the clock, working, hoisting sails, trimming sails, cleaning the things, doing the, all the work that would make the thing function. It was all based on muscle power. And if they're all too weak, and they're all lying sick, and they're unable to perform their tasks, the ship may crash into the lee shore during a storm or... It would perform badly during a battle or it would be unable to, you know, to weather out a storm properly. So what were the thoughts at the time on the cause of scurvy? Yeah, I mean, it changed over the centuries, of course, but some of the most common ones, you know, that I've pulled out of my research on dozens of tracks that were written on scurvy over these times were, um, uh, 
the foul vapors, the dampness and the cold, an excess of black bile, laziness in the sailors, um, even copper poisoning, um, blocked perspiration was a good one, a divine disfavor. My favorite is always um, the Dutch method of refining salt. That one was popular when England and uh, Holland were at war. So what happened on Captain Anson's voyage in the 1740s? I think that's like the most horrible example of uh, scurvy in all the research that I've done over hundreds, including hundreds of years. Um, essentially, a, a squadron of ships set out from England in the 1740s, and their plan was to sail around the tip of South America and go up into, into the Spanish Pacific Ocean and plunder Spanish shipping and maybe try and return home with as much plundered loot as they could. Now, of course, that was a very long voyage, and Anson, he couldn't get enough sailors to sign on for his ship, so they eventually opened up some of the old hospitals, and they threw the, the war veterans onto his ships, um, many of them who were all very old and very sick. And when they joined the ships, it was late in the season. It was the springtime, so they had a, a winter of not eating very good food. And so many of them were already sick when they got on the ships. And so they set sail for South America, and they encountered storms going around the southern tip. And the storms eventually caused a shipwreck of at least two of the ships, I believe, um, hundreds and hundreds of the men died of scurvy and were thrown overboard during the storm. And then, of course, they had to set off across the Pacific Ocean. And during that horrible crossing of the Pacific Ocean, um, uh, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds more of them died. So I think out of about 2,000 mariners who left England, three years later, I think a few hundred of them returned on one of the ships. Everyone else died, most of them either directly from scurvy or through accidents caused by the scurvy on the crew. So it was, it was a massive disaster. It was an incredible amount of suffering. You're listening to ReachMD Book Club, and we're speaking with author Stephen Brown about his book, Scurvy, How a Surgeon, a Mariner, and a Gentleman Solved the Greatest Medical Mystery of the Age of Sail. So who was James Lind, and how did he approach the threat of scurvy? Yeah, I mean, James Lind is actually one of the great heroes of the story. He was um, a young Scottish naval surgeon who couldn't find a job once he got out of school, and so he signed on to the Royal Navy in 1739. And after years of being in the Navy and seeing this endless horrible diseases and the suffering and the scurvy, um, he decided that he was going to at least try and do something about it. Now, if you don't mind, I just, just to help set the scene, I would um, read this one description, my favorite description of life aboard ships. This isn't Lane who said it, but it's the same era. It was Tobias Smollett. Um, here's his description of life on the ship. Here I saw 50 miserable, distempered wretches suspended in rows, so huddled upon each other that not more than 14 inches space was allotted for each, with the head and bedding, and deprived of the light of the day as well as fresh air, each patient breathing nothing but a noisome atmosphere of the morbid steams exhaling from their own excrements and diseased bodies, devoured with the vermin hatched in the filth that surrounded them and destitute of every convenience necessary for people in that helpless condition. I mean, that's the, that was life in the bowels of the ships at that era. And, and, you know, Lind was just, he was somewhat appalled by this. And so, against all the thinking and all the odds at the time, he came upon an interesting idea and sort of a blind test, which had never been done before. He took 12 scorbutic men and separated them and put them on, this, on a similar diet for two weeks each pair with the same diet. One group was given cider. Another group was given elixir of vitriol, which could be either 
eaten or gargled. I think that's like um, hydrochloric acid. Spoonfuls of vinegar was another one. The others were, uh, another set was a half pint of seawater a day. Um, one was given two oranges and one lemon daily. And another group was given a paste made of garlic, mustard, radish root, and other substances mixed with uh, laxative. Now, of course, the, you know, the results are not really surprising. The ones who were given two oranges and a lemon a day immediately recovered from the scurvy and were back at work, whereas some of the other ones nearly died before they got back to shore. Now, this was the most amazing thing because no one had actually ever done this test before. And at that time, they lacked the scientific and intellectual framework for, for testing theories. So there was a lot of preposterous theories around about the causes of, of things based on the four bodily humors or, you know, other theoretical frameworks that tried to define disease. And what Lind did was to take it and, and to isolate it and practically show that regardless of the theories, this is the one thing which was um, effective. And, um, of course, that should have been persuasive at the time, but if, for many, many, many years it was completely ignored. It took him years and years to write up his results. And then because information was so hard to share at the time, you know, with the primitive technology, the fact that he knew this happened was not readily available to any of the other physicians or people operating in those environments. And so, you know, as a historian, we can go and find that and say, oh, well, there's a solution right there. But, of course, no one knew it at the time. And it took, you know, it took another generation before his uh, solutions were put into practice. How about the role of Captain Cook? Yeah, I mean, another several decades after that, Captain Cook and his, his famous voyages around the world, beginning in 1768, I believe, he went on three amazing voyages. And uh, his second voyage, of course, for many, many years, cruising all around the Pacific Ocean, searching for the mysterious southern continent that they believed had to exist there, he was able to return home to England three years later and not have a single man dead of scurvy. Now, that had never, ever been done before. It was, it was absolutely astonishing that this could have happened. And, of course, he was awarded the Royal Society's Copley Gold Medal for his achievement. Now, the thing about it, though, is that no one knew exactly how he did it because he hadn't read Lind. He took every idea that was then prevalent about how you could cure scurvy such as the drinking of the salt water. Um, he was particularly fond of, uh, of a sauerkraut, but he also had little daily doses of lemon juice, and he would also make the sailors wash their hands all the time, and he would put it into shore and get food. So he tried a great many things on his voyage, and he was very authoritarian about making sure that everyone followed his rules and his orders about it. And that's how he solved scurvy. But, so he proved that scurvy could be solved, but he didn't know how it did it. And so he had maybe done a dozen different things, and no one could actually say which one was the most prevalent. And at the time, there was, there was different battling intellectual factions about, you know, in the, in the sort of medical establishment in London at the time. And um, it was those theories which ended up being pushed onto the Royal Navy without any experimentation or test as to which of the methods would have been most effective. So Gilbert Blaine was the gentleman in your book. What did he end up doing? Gilbert Blaine was a young, kind of an, an arrogant, a bit of a swaggerer, an aristocratic uh, physician at the time. And he was not liked by very many people, but he was of the right social class. And so when he finished school, and he was in his 20s at the time, 
he joined the Navy too, but not as a surgeon. He joined as a physician, which was a distinction at the time, which was significant. Um, he was friends, or his family was friends, with the admiral of the Caribbean fleet, the West Indies fleet. And so when he went over there, the admiral promoted him to be in charge of the entire fleet, which was an unprecedented thing for you know, a co- completely untested young person to jump ahead of everyone and be in charge of the entire fleet as the physician. But in this case, it proved to be an excellent idea because he was a very conscientious person. So he didn't just take the role and say, yes, yes, here I will sit at, in charge of everything and just bumble along. He, he did all the reading he possibly could and studied and prepared for his job as best he could. And when he arrived there, and he saw the horrible conditions and the amount of people that were all dying on these ships and 20% of the mariners sick on, on the ships and the endless, endless transporting of the invalids to the hospitals on the shore and back out again. And he was just appalled, appalled at this. And, and he, he realized that that's not a sustainable way of running a military operation. Um, and this is one of his famous quotes. Here it is. I perceived, he wrote, the most anxious and laudable pains taken to husband and preserved from decay, all manner of stores, such as ropes, blocks, spars, gunpowder, and arms. But however precious these may be as indispensable weapons of war, it will not be disputed that human hands are equally so. Yet it does not appear that this branch of duty has been studied with the same degree of anxiety as that which regards the inanimate materials of war. So he perceived that all the effort was going into making sure the materials were working properly, and here we have all the sailors are sick all the time. And it's just very silly because the amount of money that, and the training involved to keep a, a, you know, a sailor functioning was actually quite large. And so the fleet was severely weakened by this lack of manpower. And so what he had did is he, he read James Lynn's original treatise on scurvy, which was a hard-to-obtain book publishing being at it was at the time, and he began testing and implementing all of the things in there, and he, and he really latched on to this idea that we've got to, we're in the West Indies, we have limes, we don't have lemons, but at the very least we have limes, and he started making sure that the, the surgeons on every ship would be squeezing the lime juice into the men's grog every day, and so every day the mariners were actually drinking citrus juice, and he had basically eliminated scurvy during his time that it was there. It was one in seven people were down with the disease when he arrived. Five years later, it was down to one in 20. So we're with author Stephen Brown. His book is Scurvy, How a Surgeon, a Mariner, and a Gentleman Solved the Greatest Medical Mystery of the Age of Sail. Stephen, thank you so much for being on the program. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Dr. John Russell. You've been listening to ReachMD Book Club. To download this program or others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. Thanks again for listening.